All right. Hey, everybody. I'm going to move this stuff real fast. If uh, you don't know me, my name's John, and I've been here, I don't know, a handful of times. All right, filling in when Chris is out of town or food poisoning or whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so today we're going to be in uh, Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation, that was at the end, Isaiah chapter 6. So we've got the text there, but if you have a Bible and you want to flip over there, uh, that'd be great. But let me just open this up in prayer. God, we thank you. Um, I thank you for this church and um, for these folks who gather every week faithfully to worship you and to fellowship together and to study your word together. And I thank you that you have given us your word and that you have not sort of left us in the dark, but that you speak to us um, through your scriptures. And uh, my deepest prayer, Lord, is that um, that's what would happen today as um, we go through this passage together from Isaiah 6, that you would really just use your Holy Spirit and speak to and uh, speak to your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Dropped the clicker. So I grew up here uh, in San Francisco, but uh, my parents were college students when they had us. Uh, my parents had us, my, me and my, I have two brothers, they had us really young. And so uh, we didn't have any money when I was growing up. And uh, so I grew up eating all the off-brand foods, you know, the off-brand foods. So, you know, a company like uh, Safeway or whatever will make cereal or Coke or some, some sort of a knockoff that's not quite as good. So I never got Captain Crunch when I was growing up. You know, I got Commander Crunch. Um, and it, uh, it didn't come in a box, right? It, uh, it came in a bag, uh, you know, those big giant bags of cereal. Or I didn't get Dr. Pepper. I had Dr. Skipper. That was the, the Safeway brand of Dr. Pepper. And so anyway, uh, I grew up eating all these different foods. And one of the things I noticed was some of the off brands, uh, like the Albertson or not Albertsons, I guess it's Lucky. That's what it was when I was a kid too. Uh, the Lucky brand or the Safeway brand. Some of these are, um, closer to the originals than others. So if you, if you like Coca-Cola, Safeway Coke is the closest that you're going to get to the actual Coke. Uh, the Lucky Coke was a hot pile of garbage. It was disgusting. Or um, Kirkland Signatures had, you know, they had a brand of Coke at Costco. That one was not very good, too. Um, Christianity works kind of the same way. Right? There's the, the real thing. We've got Christianity. And then we've got all these off-brands of Christianity that kind of look similar from the outside. Um, you've got the really obvious ones, like you've got the, uh, you got Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Those are more like the Lucky Coke, when you get in there and you really start figuring out what's going on, you think, oh, this is not really anything like the original. This is nothing like Coca-Cola Classic. Um, but then there's other off-brands that are a little bit harder to spot, and they work themselves into kind of our churches and that sort of stuff. And one of them is called, um, is what these two sociologists have called moral therapeutic deism. Uh, so these two sociologists wrote this book, uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And th this book is from 2005, so it's a little bit old. But they did this study and uh, this book, Soul Searching. And they, what they did was they interviewed 3,000 American like youth group teenagers, church kids, right? And they asked them all sorts of questions about what they believe, about their faith. And as they asked these kids these questions, what they found was really shocking these kids didn't understand their faith at all. 
And most of them weren't practicing anything close to gospel Christianity. And so what they do in this book is they break down this, what they call moral therapeutic deism into sort of five points, uh, five, the core beliefs of moral therapeutic deism. So I'm going to, I want to show you these. The first one is they believe that there's a God, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So that's the first one is they do believe in God. They're not atheists. They're some sort of a God. Uh, so they're at least deists, right? That's where moral therapeutic deism comes in. The second thing they say though, is God wants people to be good. He wants them to be nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible. But this part is, was striking and by most world religions. So that Christianity is not unique, uh, but um, God's not, um, what, they, what they said was God's not particularly involved in your life. This is the deism part where God sort of built the world in a certain way and he sort of just lets things run. Uh, we call that the clockmaker sort of thing. He just like, build, like building a clock and then you just kind of let it go. The third thing that these guys said was that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Oh, I read the wrong one, didn't I? Yeah, I'm all out of uh, one, two. They're all out of order on mine. So number two, God does not particularly, is not particularly involved in one's life. Three is God wants everybody to be good. The fourth one is the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. So God, religion isn't about God's glory. It's about you and your happiness. God just wants you to be happy and well-adjusted, that sort of thing. The whole point is that God needs to help you work through all of your garbage. And then the fifth point there is, and then just good people to go to heaven when they die. So if you're just, if you're a little bit, if you're good enough, you get to go to heaven. So here you can see these three points, right? Moral, therapeutic, deism. God just wants you to be good. And his, God is here for you. And other than that, though, deism is he's not particularly involved in your life. So this moral therapeutic deism, when these sociologists wrote this book, they were just interviewing teenagers. But then all these pastors read this book that weren't youth pastors and said, whoa, that's what everybody else in my church believes too. And so even though this is from 2005, people, pastors and theologians and stuff have been talking about this study for a long time and realizing that this is a lot more of American sort of evangelicalism than maybe we care to admit. This sort of is rampant in the evangelical world, adults, kids, everybody. So today what we're going to do is um, we're going to read Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah chapter six. But to set the stage, let me say this, Isaiah chapters one through five, if you've uh, not read it or not read it recently, basically goes like this. God shows up through his prophet Isaiah, and he's making a case against his people. And what he says to the people of Israel is, you guys, you have broken the covenant. And so like uh, chapter one, verse 11, God even says to them, I have had enough of your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, which would be like God sending a prophet to our context and saying, I'm done with your worship songs. I hate your preaching. I'm sick of the way you guys take communion. That's kind of what God is doing. And so the idea in these first five chapters is on the outside, the religious activity looked pretty good. You see, God didn't show up and say, why aren't you sacrificing? Why aren't you worshiping? He says, I'm sick of your sacrifice and your worship because they were doing everything on the outside. They were doing a lot like this moral therapeutic deism in our day. They were doing this sort of Safeway brand of the covenant religion with God. And some of it had the appearance of the real stuff, but on the inside, right, there was no Coca-Cola classic. And so um, God is basically saying in these first five chapters, you are all guilty as sin. And so today, what we're going to do then is we're going to read the beginning of Isaiah 6. This is Isaiah's answer to the off-brand gospel. 
Now, John MacArthur, the pastor and uh, writer, and I think he runs a college or something, um, he has this illustration in his book, Reckless Faith, where he says this. He says kind of, you know how they, uh, they teach uh, federal agents to spot counterfeit money? Is what this is what he says is they don't have them spend a lot of time with the counterfeit money. Oh, this is what fake money feels like. They have let them spend a lot of time with real money so that when the fake money slides by, oh, they can feel it really easy um, because they've spent so much time with the original. Since he wrote that book, a bunch of people who do this job were like, I don't know, I think he made that up, but it's still a good sermon illustration, right? Uh, <laughs> um, my one of my favorite books was called. Uh, Dad, did that really happen or were you just preaching? It was written by a pastor who <laughs> his kids said, you always make up these stories while you're preaching. Anyway, but you get the idea, right? This is what Isaiah is going to do. He wants us, he's not going to spend a lot of time here talking about the fake faith that these people were practicing. What he wants to do is he wants to show them the genuine thing so that it will rock their world. And so uh, Isaiah 6 is this throne room vision. So we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So there was a lot of unrest happening here with the people of Judah. Uh, what happened was this is the year 740 BC. So it was a little bit ago. And Uzziah was this king who had this long and prosperous reign. And now he's dead. His reign is over. And he reigned for so long in a time, span, in a time period where everybody's lifespans were pretty short that what was going on here was he was the only king that most of the people of Judah had ever known. He had been on the throne for so long. And so everybody was wondering about his son, Jotham. Is this guy, Jotham, going to be any sort of a good king? We've had this king for quite a while. And so Isaiah gives this throne room vision in chapter six with that tension in the background. And kind of what he's going to say here is, you guys don't really need to worry about Jotham because I want to show you who's really on the throne. So he says in the rest of one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe Filled the temple. So in the rest of verse one, what we have here is this description of the Lord using these images of power, of control, of strength. Do you see that? He's high and lifted up. So he's, he sits above you in, with authority. The train of his robe fills the temple. He, that's how big God is. The temple was the biggest building in the ancient, you know, in the, the country of Judah. So it's his, the train of his robe fills the biggest biggest building. All this to say is he's big and he's in charge and there's no doubt about it. What Isaiah is trying to do here is he's trying to bring the people of God uh, that are reading this into what we call the fear of the Lord. Now this word, this phrase fear of the Lord is kind of a weird phrase in English because our word fear has a narrower meaning than the Hebrew word fear. Um, there was a, I watch a lot of TV, you know, and uh, one of my favorite shows Melissa and I are watching now, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Have you seen Everybody Loves Raymond? That show gets a lot funnier after you get married, by the way, you know. Uh, <laughs> so we're watching Everybody Loves Raymond and the brother, uh, Robert, was, has these religious in-laws and he's trying to impress them, even though he's not very religious, but he's pretending to be. And he says to them, oh yes, we're God-fearing people, all of us. We're scared to death, right? That's kind of what a lot of people think of when they read the fear of the Lord. Am I supposed to be, am I supposed to be afraid of God? Well, that's not exactly what it is. What we talk about, what we mean when we say the fear of the Lord, what the Bible means when it says the fear of the Lord is sort of the sense of awe when presented with the majesty of God. It's what happens when you come in contact with something just so much greater than you. Um, another TV reference, Ron Swanson from uh, 
uh, Parks and Rec. It's why he said the only two times it's acceptable for a man to cry is, uh, is uh, at a funeral and the Grand Canyon. That's what he says. You know, when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, even Ron Swanson says it's okay to cry when you're presented with the majesty. And there was an author, his name was Frank White. He coined the term the overview effect uh, in a book he wrote in 1987 about what was happening was these astronauts were all going to space and uh, they were having all these weird feelings and experiences. And so he met with a bunch of them and interviewed them. And I'll read to you what he, what, about the overview effect. I'll read to you from um, the Wikipedia article on it because that's super reliable. It says, uh, the overview effect refers to the experience of seeing firsthand the reality of Earth in space, which is immediately understood to be a tiny, fragile ball of life hanging in the void, shielded and nourished by a paper-thin atmosphere. And so what was going on was these astronauts were going up into space, and then they were realizing how big the universe is and how small the world when you're on it seems pretty big. You know what I mean? Like um, if you've, I take big motorcycle trips, and last year I got up into Montana and uh, Yellowstone and Wyoming, and I thought, man, I was thinking about that. Like this took me a long time to drive my motorcycle up here. This, this is a huge planet. And then these astronauts get up there and go, wow, this planet is tiny. But what happened was it was changing who they were. And so they were coming back and they were more loving, more giving. They were better people coming back after being in contact with the void of space. Um, What Isaiah is describing here is infinitely more glorious. You see, he's not describing creation. He's describing the one who spoke and creation existed. All of the universe existed. He's describing the creator himself and the throne room where God sits. So he, he continues in verse two. He says, Above him, so above the Lord on the throne, stood the seraphim. Each of them had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So he's describing, trying to describe what he sees. A lot of this is sort of symbolic imagery here. Um, The word seraphim literally means burning ones. So he looks up and he sees these angels and they're just like on fire and... Uh, he sees this movement. They're, they're swirling around the throne of God. And so he tries to describe them. He's like, I don't know. They kind of they had six wings. And, uh, but this is where sort of the symbolic imagery comes in. He says, with one, they covered their face. And what he means by that is even supernatural beings can't look at the glory of God, can't look at the face of God. They're covering their eyes. With the other wings, they're, the next two, they're covering their feet, which in the ancient world, that doesn't mean anything to us. But in the ancient world, everybody would have just read that and go and known what it meant. It was a... Um, a symbol of modesty or humility to sort of cover your feet. Um, And that if you know the book of Ruth, where she goes and covers a guy's feet, some of that comes into play. And then the last two wings are for flying. So they're there, they're flying. These amazing creatures are swirling around the throne. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So what's happening is they're calling to each other. This is really cool. They're worshiping. Isaiah looks up to the throne room of God. And what does he see? These balls of fire, sort of angels with wings swirling around and they're praising God for who who he is. And who is he? What do they say? They call him holy, holy, holy. So first, what does the word holy mean? Um, at the root of the word, uh, it just means like different or separate. And so when we talk about, like when theologians talk about the holiness of God, what they're really doing is they're talking at, uh, talking about God on two levels. The first is he's separate from his creation, right? He's not like us. He's not a part of the created world. 
The second thing is he's separate from the sin that we see in the created world. So we're all fallen and we're sinful and we're stained with sin and he's perfect. And so while we're all drenched with sin, he's clean. But notice the triple repeat, holy, 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 right? He says it three times. Repeated words in scripture are very important. If you learn that when you kind of learn how to study your Bible, when you see something twice in a sentence, it's important. Um, Like, you know, Jesus will say truly, truly, or amen, amen, that sort of thing. Um, A word repeated three times though in ancient Hebrew was a way to say it's complete. It's ultimate. There's no greater degree. Like it's the ultimate holiness. Um, R.C. Sproul uh, says this. He wrote this. So I have a couple of R.C. Sproul quotes here. Uh, He wrote a book called The Holiness of God, which is almost entirely on this chapter. It's a So if this chapter, if you read this and you go, wow, this is cool, go get that book and read that. it's, It's fantastic. He says this, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says he's love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say he's holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory, right? The whole earth is full of his glory. I love that, right? So his, his whole, what is, what is glory? Piper, John Piper says this, the glory of God is the holiness of God made visible, right? So, um, do you see, does that make sense how this works? The, the glory of God is when us, his people are blown away by his holiness, so his holiness describes who he is. His glory describes what it means when we see that and, and, and we admire it and we love him and we worship him. And so this is what's going on in the throne room is the whole earth is full of his glory. Everybody's worshiping. And so Isaiah is having this vision of the throne, the king on the throne. Now, how does Isaiah, Isaiah react to this? How does he react to seeing this, this wonderful vision? Does he say, man, this is so cool. I've got to tell all my friends about this. No, look what he does. And Isaiah said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he calls down a woe on himself. Um, in the ESV there, it says, I, this which what I'm reading here. It says, for I am lost. Um, I like the King James here. It's actually a better translation. It says, for I am undone. That's what that word means. It means sort of being torn apart from the inside out. My inner being is coming apart at the seams. Now, normally, this is the kind of language that the prophets would use when condemning the people of Israel. They would show up and they would say, woe is you. Or sometimes they would do this for other nations. Woe is you, Midian. And, you know, woe are you, the Philistines. It was this language of judgment. But here, Isaiah is using this language on himself, specifically talking about his lips and his mouth, his unclean lips, because he's a prophet. What's going on here is at this very moment, looking at Yahweh on the throne, he realizes how unworthy he is to stand before God's people and speak to them on behalf of God. He is overwhelmed by the sense of his own sin. Um, R.C. says this, the late great R.C. He said this, uh, he saw the holiness of God for the first time uh, in his life. Isaiah really understood who God was. And at the same instant, for the first time, Isaiah really understood who Isaiah was. Do you see that? He, this sort of, uh, he's getting a better picture of who he is. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was in college, uh, I went to college in Oakland and uh, my younger brother is, what is he? Six, three, somewhere in there. 
I'm the shortest guy in my family by a lot, right? Both of my brothers are tower over me. And my younger brother, though, he's pretty big and he's really good at basketball. He's quick. He's about as quick as I am and I'm 5'9"-ish. And so both of us, we were pretty good at basketball. And we used to go into the parks in Oakland uh, in the ghetto and we would do pickup games with people and they would make fun of us, the two white guys coming in, you know, playing. And then we would play and we would win and then everybody was nice to us. And we got to know a lot of the guys. And so we always had fun. We would go play basketball at these parks, play these pickup games. Well, one time we were out there and uh, we, we went down to the park and there was nobody there. And uh, so we're just shooting around. And then this kind of older guy shows up with his maybe 12-year-old son. And they're playing on the other court. And then they come over to us and they say, hey, do you guys want to play a game? <laughs> And we're like, all right, Gramps, wait, hold on, you know, you really want to play with your grandkid here or whatever? And, and we're like, fine, we'll play. So we go and we play this guy. It was the worst I have ever been beaten in anything in my entire life. This old guy checked the ball almost from half court, puts up a shot, swish, bottom of the rim. I was like, what just happened to me? So, you know, check the ball again, swish, okay, passes it to his kid, hits a three. All of a sudden, we're down by a whole bunch. <clears throat> well, what happened was, uh, turned out this guy used to play for the Warriors back in the 80s. And so he was like late 50s or whatever, 60s. I don't know, whatever he was. But uh, even the 12th man on the Warriors. So what happened was, all of a sudden, I realized, standing in the face of an actual basketball player, how terrible I am at basketball. See, when I'm playing all those other guys out there, it's really easy for me to get cocky and think, oh, I'm pretty good. You know, I can beat all these guys who also never played for the Warriors. I play one guy who plays for the Warriors and his kid is better than me. And then my brother, just to finish the story, my, bro- my brother at one point swatted his kid and then he really turned it on because he got mad. <laughs> and so he was just toying with us at the beginning, right? And when we thought he was great. So that's how the story ended was I think they won 21 to one or two playing by ones. It was, it was pathetic. Well, that's sort of a little version of what happens with Isaiah. You see, as far as Israelites go, he's a pretty good Israelite, right? He's a prophet of the Lord. He, know, you know, he speaks for the Lord. He does all this stuff. But in the presence of God's holiness, in the presence of God's perfection, he looks at himself and he sees nothing but sin, nothing but wickedness. And next to God's perfection, it is overwhelming and it tears him apart from the inside out. This reaction uh, to God's holiness, this freaking out, this is not unique to, to Isaiah. It's not the only place that this happened. Uh, it happens all over the Bible. Uh, John Calvin says this, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. So w- when you're comparing yourself to other church people, it's easy to go, oh, I'm better than him right? Well, okay, maybe stop doing that and compare yourself to God and then see what happens. Like there's a bunch of examples I have here in the Bible. Job, uh, the book of Job. I think I've talked at this church about Job like a whole bunch of times when I've been here. I swear I know other books of the Bible too, but I like this book of Job, right? You know, the story of Job where um, the book is very complicated, so I won't get into the whole thing here. But basically the question is why are bad things happening to Job if he's a good person, right? Why did God allow Satan to mess with Job if he's a good person? And so Job and his knucklehead friends, they sit around for 30 chapters and they, they debate what's going on here and none of them have any idea what's going on. And then this fourth guy comes along and he gets a little bit closer, but he's kind of an idiot too. And at one point, Job, the whole time he's up and down and, you know, he's all over the place. And at one time, Job basically says, look, I'm a good dude. So either something is wrong with God, something must be wrong with God, right? Either he's not doing his job or he's not who he says he is. Those are the only options. 
And then God shows up and talks to Job in chapters 38 through 41. And he doesn't even answer his questions. What he does is he takes him on a tour of the universe and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you understand the way that the world works? Where were you when I created these animals that you're afraid of, right? You're afraid of this animal. I created that animal, right? How dare you question me? That's the, that's the, the gist of the book of Job. Uh, so Job's response then is, uh-oh, what have I done? And he says this in, I think I have slides for this. Yes, he says this in Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear it and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I, have, uh, I had heard you of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, look at this. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. It's the same thing that happens with Isaiah. When presented with the majesty of God, all of a sudden Job falls apart. The same thing happens to Peter in Luke chapter five, where Jesus and the boys were out fishing. And Jesus tells Peter, hey, throw your nets on the other side. And Peter kind of goes, come on, dude, I'm a professional fisherman. We've been out here all night. I know what I'm doing, but since you're Jesus, fine, I'll, you know, I'll uh, humor you. Throws the nets on the other side. They pull up so many fish that the nets start breaking. They have to get a few boats to haul them all in. Now, what was Peter's response? Did he come in? I don't know if I have a slide for this. Let's see. Yeah. He didn't come in and say, hey, you know what we should do? We should turn this into Jesus and Peter's fishing company and we can make a lot of money, right? Which seems like a pretty good idea. No, what does he do? He comes in and he, when uh, Simon Peter sighed, he fell at the Lord, at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When he saw the power of Jesus, what Jesus did, he came in and he said, get away from me. I can't be anywhere near you right now because he sees how sinful he is, right? Or another instance where Jesus calms the storm with the disciples. They're all in the boat and Jesus is supposed to be driving and he's asleep and uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the storm comes onto the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are freaking out. Jesus, why don't you even care about us? And Jesus stands up and he says, hey, storm, cut it out. And then the storm stops. And it's all of a sudden a nice, bright, sunny day. And look what the disciples do. They were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't say, wow, this is really cool. Jesus can stop the storm like that lady from the X-Men. No, what they said was they were filled with great fear. They were coming apart the same. And then this is the last one I'll give you. John from Revelation, right? John was Jesus's, one of his three best friends, right? They were in a men's group together, these, these four guys. And so if anybody knew Jesus really well on earth, it was the apostle John. And in the beginning of the book of Revelation, John has a vision where he sees Jesus, but not the Jesus he knew on earth, right? Not Jesus, baby Jesus, meek and mild and all that. He sees Jesus, the reigning king in all his glory, and how does he respond? It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. His friend, right? But Jesus, he, he fell at his feet as though dead. Being in the presence in, of Jesus in all of his glory absolutely wrecked John. And so this is the problem then. How is it that we sinful people who can't stand to be around God's holiness, how can we be brought home? That's the problem. That's the problem in the Bible. This is what Isaiah is going to get at here. Uh, in chapter one through five, in chapters one through five, he presents the case against the people of Israel. Look, your sin is so great. Then chapter six opens up with this, this vision of God's terrifying holiness. 
And then verses six through seven, he gives us a little taste of how the problem is solved. This is what he says. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken uh, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So he takes this cleansing coal. One of the, what happens is, you know, he looks up and he sees these, um, these burning angels flying around with their six wings, covering their feet and all that. And they're swirling around and they're praising God. And then all of a sudden, one of them breaks from his flight path because he's in the temple. And the seraphim flies over to the altar where the sacrifices take place. He picks up one of the coals and he flies back over to Isaiah. That coal is important. Um, The altar was the place where the sacrifices that would atone for the sin. That's where that happened. So by taking that coal... um, what he's doing is he's saying this coal sort of represents the whole sacrificial system. What you need to atone for your sin is a sacrifice. And here specifically, he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. Uh, Now, remember, this is a vision. This is why he doesn't scream in pain. If you touch your mouth with a burning coal, don't go home and do that. It's not going to atone for your sins. Um, But (laughs) this is why he doesn't scream in pain. He's having this vision, but he does this because this is what Isaiah had just spoken about. I'm a prophet of the Lord, but I am no way worthy to be a prophet of the Lord. So that's what the mouth is about. And he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You can almost feel in the narrative, the weight being lifted off of Isaiah's soul. Now this God who sits on the throne, who was so scary and whose holiness was so crushing that it was ripping him apart from the inside out. Now, all of a sudden he's accessible and he's close. And we see that here in verse eight. So, and then uh, verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom shall go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. So Yahweh, the king on the throne finally speaks in verse eight. And what he says, sorry, what he says is who will go for us? I love the Trinity reference there. And Isaiah speaks up. He says, look, I'm not afraid anymore. All of a sudden now I'm talking to this God that I was just terrified of one or two verses ago. And so he says, look, here I am. Send me. I'm excited to go. Now, what's the mission? This is the mission. Verse uh, nine. And he, he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without uh, inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains uh, when it is felled. So uh, this section is quoted to or alluded to all the time in the New Testament, a whole bunch of times. Uh, This is the mission that God gives Isaiah after he volunteers. Who's going to go for us? Isaiah says, oh, I'll go, I'll go. So he says, cool, here's, here's your mission. I need you to go to the people. And I need you to preach to them so that when they don't repent and then I judge them, they won't be able to say, hey, that's not really fair. They won't have any excuses. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time explaining these verses. I just wanted to read this kind of at the end. Uh, Just enough to say this. Uh, Isaiah was transformed by his experience at the throne room of God and by this cleansing that after that, he was willing to go and do whatever God wanted him to do, no matter how terrible the job. And so that's what happens. God sends him on this terrible job. And so uh, 
even to show up and preach this unpopular message that would eventually get him killed. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was killed. Uh, They sawed him in half. They put him in an empty log and then they sawed the log in half. And that's how Isaiah died. And we don't know for sure that that's true, but that's what the Jewish folks have been saying for, you know, 3,000 years, 2,000 years and whatever. Uh, So it's probably something like that. Um, That's a, you know, that's a pretty big transformation to be willing to go that far uh, for the Lord. And so to, to fulfill that mission. And so he does that. He spends the rest of this book or a big chunk of this book uh, till chapter 39, really presenting this message of judgment. But look how the passage ends. I didn't read the end of 13. This is the end of 13. He says this, the holy seed is its stump. So there, it ends on this note of grace, not on this note of judgment. The chapter ends like this, where God says, look, I'm going to chop down the entire forest, but I'm going to leave one stump. And the rest of, in the rest of the book of Isaiah, this imagery is really fleshed out where he talks about the seed and all this stuff. Um, But from this stump that I leave will come a shoot. And from that shoot will come the Messiah. And from the Messiah, salvation will reach the nations. And so he says, I'm, I'm, even though I'm promising judgment, at the same time, I'm also promising grace. And so that's our passage. Now, one of the cool things in this passage that I'm going to show you is the movement of the narrative. Um, There's a guy, Warren Wearsby, who wrote this book, uh, Expository Outlines of the Bible. And it's really cool. He just really quickly gives you a quick overview of every chapter of the entire Bible. He breaks it into three points. Sometimes it's a bit of a stretch, but you know, it's pretty good. So this is what he says. Uh, Okay. So Warren Wearsby says, this chapter shows us the way that this works the way the Christian life should work is he says, the first thing we do is we look upward at the holiness of God. And what that does is it gives us this sense of the fear of the Lord, the awe of God. And what, once we have that, then that forces us to look inward. That's what happened to Isaiah to look at our own sin. Woe is me. I I see how sinful I am and how much I need to be cleansed and how much I need to repent and receive atonement. And that new life then transforms, you know, transforms me, transforms us. And we look outward And so Sproul says, I don't have it on the slides, but he says the pattern here, a pattern repeated over and over again in history, God appears, man quakes in terror, God forgives, then he heals and he sends. So it's from brokenness to mission. That's the pattern for God's people, for man. And so scripture is filled with examples of exactly this is what happens. Think of Zacchaeus. Uh, he, he sees Jesus, he looks inward at his own sin, and then he becomes a missionary. Peter, Paul, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We have these examples of this pattern, upward, inward, outward. You look at God, you realize how bad you stink, you receive forgiveness from him, and then that turns you into a missionary. Now, the difference there is with that Safeway brand of Christianity. That moral therapeutic deism is the exact opposite of this, even though it parades itself around as Christianity. Look at the pattern there. First, it's inward. So the outline starts with you. I'm the center of my life. I'm what's really important. Do you see how that's different from the gospel? How the gospel starts with God, how it starts with Christ. So here you look inward and what you do is you ask, how can I be happy? Then you look upward, but it's not the same upward that we see in the gospel right? The gospel is that awe, that that fear of the Lord, where you see his holiness and you're blown away and you're rocked at your core by that fear of the Lord. In moral therapeutic deism, the upward is more like visiting a banker who can give you the loan that you need for whatever it is you need a loan for. So you're going there, but what you're really doing is you're thinking, how can I impress this guy so that I can get what I need from him? And then you look inward again. 
Did it work? Am I happy? Did I do enough moral stuff to earn his blessing? That's a completely different religion. It doesn't make any sense. So the question then is, how can I tell if I'm practicing the Safeway brand of Christianity or if I'm more of a gospel person? Well, let me show you what each one looks like. In the gospel, your attitude is that you are overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. You cannot believe what the Lord has done for you. And you think, you know, this is, this is too good to be true. In moral therapeutic deism, the way you operate is you think God owes me more than he's given me. He hasn't quite fulfilled his end of the bargain yet. That's very different. In the gospel, God is the end game. All you need is God. All you need is him. Your prayers are about him. In moral therapeutic deism, all you need is stuff. Stuff is the end game. What can I get from God? What kind of blessings can I get? In the gospel, you follow the law because, uh, because God has given you a new heart and has freed you from the power of sin in your life. So you obey because you get to, not because you have to. In moral therapeutic deism, you follow the law because you're stashing away brownie points that you can cash in later when you need something from God. In the gospel, you are never good enough. The more you look at yourself, the more you realize what a wretch you are, but you're confident that Jesus, for some reason, has saved you anyway. That's the gospel. Uh, In moral therapeutic deism, this is what you say. You say, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than that other guy. You, you compare yourself to the people around you. At least when, I'm, when I sin, I'm not as bad as, I don't know, Frank, you know, in church. Is there anybody named Frank here? No? Okay, good. So I'm not as bad as Frank, right? Because everybody knows he cheated on his wife a few years ago. So, you know, I just cheat on my taxes. That's not cheating on my wife. That's different. That's not as bad, right? Moral therapeutic deism doesn't understand that every sin is a sin against a perfectly holy God. In the gospel, you have that fear of the Lord, that sense of awe, when you think about the Lord. Um, when I was a youth pastor, part of my French, I got in trouble a little bit for this when I was, uh, um, when I was a youth pastor with one of the parents, but I, we used to call it the holy crap factor <laughs> with God. When you're thinking about God and you go, crap, like, I can't believe that this is real. Maybe we can call it the woe factor. Maybe that's a little better. Whoa. I, you know, that if you, you know what I mean when I say that, where you just, you don't have words. It's just, I can't believe this God. Moral therapeutic deism, well, God's not really that impressive. You know, he's there, he gives me stuff, whatever, but like he, he's not my whole world. And so let's bridge this then to the 21st century, All right? Let's talk, let's talk about us. How, what, what do we do here? Well, first I want to talk to, I don't know, and most of you guys, I mean, I've met a lot of you guys, but I don't know who's here, but if there's people here that are not followers of Jesus, uh, I want to talk to you first. Uh, first, what I want to say is, much of what you've seen parading around as Christianity probably isn't the gospel. You've probably seen a lot of this Safeway brand Christianity. And my guess is that you've encountered Christians that don't really look like Jesus. They weren't loving. They didn't display grace in their life. They didn't make you want to find out more about God. So what I want to say is I'm sorry about those folks. In Isaiah's day, that was most of the people of God. And the whole book of Isaiah, the whole first two thirds of the book anyway, is a harsh rebuke against that kind of hypocrisy. The truth is, though, that God really is something else. He is outside of creation. He, he spoke and everything came into existence. And then when his people that he loved rebelled against him, he didn't give up on us. He became one of us. The big became little. Why? So that he could represent us. He could live the perfect life that we could never live, take the punishment that we couldn't take, 
for our rebellion. And so his life, death, and resurrection bring us back to the relationship with God that we were created to be a part of. That's the real gospel story. So just when our sin was going to crush us, the hero of the biblical story comes in with this offer of free salvation. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, I want you to at least leave today thinking, well, maybe what I've seen wasn't the real gospel, wasn't the true faith. Second though, is most of us here probably at church because we're followers of Jesus. And so one thing that drives me nuts, you know, about being a preacher is, and every preacher will tell you this, is how people sit and listen to sermons and they think, boy, I sure hope Frank was listening, right? <laughs> okay, you know, we think, well, that sermon is cool, but that was probably about somebody else. Uh, but no, I wasn't preaching to Frank. I was talking to you. Uh, now you might be saying, well, okay, I'm not one to subscribe to that Safeway brand of Christianity. That's not me. Shut up. Yes, it is course it is, right? It's all of us. There's nobody here who always sees God for who he is and always sees themselves for who they are, right? And if you're saying, well, that's me, then pride is the sin and go talk to Chris about that, right? Our pride always makes him seem smaller and us seem bigger. And so uh, all of us are more like those rebellious Israelites than maybe we would care to admit. And so what's the answer? Oswald Chambers said it. Oh, wait, I think I used the same slides last time I did this sermon. No, I didn't. I don't have this quote. Oswald Chambers said this. This is the answer. This is how you do it. How do I? He says, uh, this is what you do. You stare at the glory of God until you see it. That's the answer. You stare at the glory of God until you see it. The more time that you spend looking at the glory of God, the deeper sense of awe will fill your life. Well, here's the thing. How do you do that? I doubt anybody in this room is having throne room visions like Isaiah did. That's probably not happening when you pray. If it is, cool, but probably not. Uh, I doubt that's going on. So what do you do? Uh, how, do we, how do we have this, how do we look at the glory of God? Well, we have something better than what Isaiah did, right? We have Christ. You see, we live in a different era than Isaiah. We have a fuller sense of the truth than he did. He lived in the Old Covenant. He lived during that Old Testament period looking forward to Christ, but he didn't have all the information. There's more to the story than Isaiah 6, because here's what happened. The God who sits on the throne, who the angels were swirling around and worshiping as holy, the God whose holiness broke Isaiah, tore him apart from the inside out, who atoned for Isaiah's sin, this God made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians says, right? The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He came down and became one of us. And that's what these two verses are, right? John 1:14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So looking at Jesus, that's the word. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or Hebrews 1, long, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So he used Isaiah before, but now he's using Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. The antidote to moral therapeutic deism is looking to Jesus, right? The answer to that Safeway brand of Christianity that tastes nothing like the original is looking to Jesus. It's trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for your salvation. It's resting your life in his grace and putting your hope in him, looking forward to eternity with him. So I'd like to end the sermon. Here's what I want to do. Um, I forgot to start my timer again, so I have no idea how long I've been talking. You know, is it Monday yet? Just kidding. Uh, that's actually not that far out of the possibility when I'm preaching, but... Um, 
If you have a Bible, flip over. I don't remember if I put slides for this in here. Oh, I don't have the both chapters. But um, uh, if you have a Bible, flip over to Revelation 4. And what I want to do is end the sermon uh, by reading the sequel. So Isaiah chapter 6 is my probably second favorite part of the Bible. Isaiah, uh, Revelation 4 through 5 is my favorite two chapters. It's my favorite section in the entire Bible. Um, it's the sequel to Isaiah 6. You see, uh, it's Isaiah 6, but it was written by John the Apostle, right? So he's got a fuller, a fuller sense of what's going on is he has this sort of second throne room vision. It's one of the only sequels. It's like Empire Strikes Back, right? It's one of the only sequels that's better than the original. Corey knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, so if, here's what you do. If you find yourself in those sort of moments where you're in that moral therapeutic deism, I'm just using God for whatever. I'm not quite trusting in grace the way that I should be. I'm not living into the gospel the way that I should be. Here's what you do. Open your Bible or, uh, you know, in your Bible app or whatever. Turn to Revelation chapter four, read chapters four and five, rinse and repeat, and just keep doing that over and over again for your entire life. That's a pretty, I've been doing this for a lot of years. I read this, these two chapters constantly because it gives us such a good picture of, it's sort of the Bible's version of being an astronaut in space and looking at the universe and going, wow, right? This is what we see. So I'm going to read this whole thing and this is going to take a second, but you know, it's the Bible. How mad can you get if this takes a while? All right. He says this, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard coming, uh, heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder before the throne were burning, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. By the way, just real quick, when he says seven spirits, that was like the Greek way to say complete. So he just means the, 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 not that there's seven different Holy Spirits. Uh, so this, which uh, are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four cre uh, living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they, uh, they existed and were created." Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written and within it, within and on the back sealed with, 
sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out from the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain <clears throat> to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessed, uh, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the coolest part of the Bible, right? That's the God. That's not the God of moral therapeutic deism. That's the God of the gospel. It's pretty cool. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, we confess that a lot of times we operate out of sort of that Safeway brand of Christianity, that Safeway brand of the gospel where we don't trust you for who you really are. We don't see you for who you really are. And um, we inflate our own sort of self-worth. We ask for your forgiveness for that. And Lord, I pray for everybody in here. And I just ask that, uh, that we would uh, more and more as we live our lives, that we would have that sense of awe, that sense of the fear of Yahweh, that sense of the fear of the Lord, that we would see you for who you really are, and then as we are undone, Lord, that we would trust in the gospel and then in the work of your son. And Lord, earlier we prayed for churches all over the city who are proclaiming the gospel. Lord, we are a part of a, a large group of your people who ultimately, Lord, are looking forward to that moment when we see you face to face, when we can behold your glory, when we can worship you perfectly and without sin, we can spend eternity together and eternity with you. What I pray, Lord, is that that reality would really sink into our hearts in the here and the now, and that it would impact the way that we live as missionaries in San Francisco um, while we still are on this side of eternity. And so, uh, Lord, like Isaiah, when you ask, you know, who will go for us, it's the prayer of this church and 
you know, my church plant and churches all over the city, Lord, what we want to say is here we are, send us. Send us to be the messengers of your holiness and the, 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 the proclaimers of your gospel to the people in this city who so desperately need to be brought back into a, 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 the relationship with you. You're such a wonderful God and we don't deserve anything that you've done for us. What we deserve from you is judgment and damnation and wrath and anger. But because you are love, you have, you have delivered us and you have redeemed us and you've brought us back to you. <clears throat> and Lord, we spend eternity saying thank you for that. And we won't even get close to scratching the surface. You're such a wonderful God, a wonderful savior. Um, to such a fallen and wretched people. And that's a wonderful gospel. So we thank you for that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.